I don't have a flash illustration or introduction or story that's going to weave and wind its way through today's uh, sermon because I'm just too excited about what John is doing in the gospel here. And I'm trying my hardest to get bored with John's gospel, but the deeper I dig, the more I get excited by it. And it's that excitement that I want to try and convey to you today uh, that John's gospel is life-giving, it's soul-quenching, it's life-changing, it's exciting news. The book is brilliantly designed around John's purpose statement But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Straight up, John tells us, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, straight up he tells us who he thinks Jesus is. Remember, Jesus we found was the Word. And John 1, 1 to 3 goes, In the beginning was the Word. That's an obvious allusion to Genesis 1, 1, that when God created everything by His Word, and the Word was God, that is, Jesus is distinct, and the Word was God. Jesus is divine. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made, and in Him was life, And that life was the light of all mankind. Going on in John chapter 1 here, one by one as people encounter Jesus, they say who they think he is. And in chapter 1, he's given titles like the Lamb of God, Son of God, Rabbi, the Son of Man, Messiah, King of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. And John goes on in the book here to support his claim that the fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king and the teacher of Israel and the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. And John goes on to support these claims in John chapters 2 through to John chapter 12, telling stories about Jesus and each of the stories he tells us has the same basic pattern. You see, Jesus performs a miracle that John calls a sign or he makes a claim about himself. Each sign or claim tells us something specific about Jesus, but each sign or claim also generates increasing controversy. And it finally culminates in Jesus being killed. And at the end of each of these stories, we're forced, and we will be today as well, to make a decision about who we say Jesus is. And so today we have this sign, and so far, this is miracle number three, or sign number three, and so far we've seen Jesus turn water into wine at the wedding, and that signifies the end of ceremonial washing and the beginning of the new age of salvation. Uh, Last week we saw the Samaritan woman at the well, and Tim took us through that story. Many Samaritans believe, but in the last half of chapter four, Jesus speaks by his word and the official son is rescued from death. Uh, Jesus proves that he can give life and that he can even give it to the non-Jew. He is truly the saviour of the world. 
And today we come to another sign, another section of John's Gospel where he presents a collection of stories around Jewish sacred days or feasts. And in chapter 5, we have the first one that we're going to see. We're not told which sacred day or feast this is, uh, just that the healing happens specifically on the Sabbath. Uh, It begins, start of chapter 5, some time later. So Jesus has come up the mountain to Jerusalem and there's this pool of water. And I've got a picture that I found. This is a real picture of this pool. They've discovered where it is. And this pool of water has special healing powers. Unfortunately, it's not how I would have photographed it or depicted it. Uh, At this pool of water uh, has special healing powers. Uh, Next to this pool of water, many disabled people, you'll see that in the text, the blind, the lame, the paralysed, would gather waiting for the water to be stirred up. The footnote in your Bible uh, might say something like, an angel of the Lord... Uh, would come down and stir this water. Uh, This was added to later manuscripts, and so we should just really omit that. Uh, Theologian John Stott says that uh, the original copyist thought this might be a useful addition, but in reality all we really know is that this place is that the pool was fed by some kind of natural spring which had spa-like healing properties. And so you see the first... Uh, into the pool after the water was stirred would receive some kind of physical benefit. Whether that was healing or just some relief, um, we really don't know. But whatever it was, it must have been good. And no wonder these people would hang around waiting, hoping, patiently waiting and hoping for this water to be stirred, for this to happen. And you see, ever since sin entered our world... Way back in Genesis chapter 3, sickness and death have been a horrible part of our world and it's not how it's meant to be. Now we're not told why, but Jesus' attention is drawn to this man who's been paralysed for 38 years. That's about as long as I've been alive, just shy. He's an invalid, he can't move and Jesus asks him at the tail end of verse 6, do you want to get well? To which the man replies, verse 7, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now Jesus, the same Jesus uh, that John began with in John 1.1 the creator that spoke creation into existence, speaks here. Verse 8, and he says, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man is cured. He's healed in an instant. There's no medicine here. There's no, here, take this pill and in three days you're going to feel much better. It's instant. There's no rehab, there's no massage, there's no scans, there's no nothing. He is gone from this bloke that hasn't moved himself for 38 years to a bloke that's now suddenly upright, walking, talking and even being able to carry his bed with him, his mat that he was sleeping on at the side of this pool. Then we're told that the day on which this happens 
is very significantly the Sabbath. The last day of the week, the day of rest, it's the day that God rested with his people in the garden, the last day of the creation week. It was the day that pointed Israel forward to when they would be at rest in the promised land and for us it points forward to God's ultimate rest in the new heaven and the new earth, the ultimate promised land. Jesus has done the impossible here, hasn't he? After 38 years, this man, paralysed, is now standing up, walking, and more than that, he's physically able to carry his mat, his bedding. And the miracle's not even up for question. It happened, it really happened. It was done in the public place, in the public sphere, in front of other people. And to cap it off, the Jewish leaders, they're not all, whoa, that's amazing. They're more worried about the fact that this man's breaking the Sabbath law by carrying his bedding. How dumb. Nothing to see here, folks. Just a man who's been paralysed for 38 years and he's now walking. Nothing to see. But we will worry that he's working on the Sabbath, on the day he's supposed to be resting. Jesus doesn't want to draw attention to the miracle itself. So he slips away into the crowd. Verse 13 there. But the Jewish leaders... They want to know who told the man to break the law, verse 10. And so we move into this aftermath, as I've called it. Later on, Jesus finds the man at the, ta- at the temple. I've even got a picture of a temple. I don't know that it's the exact current one, but there's a temple there for you. It's kind of like scene two in the movie here. In scene one, this paralysed man is healed and he gets harassed by the Jewish leaders for carrying... He's betting on the Sabbath. But all the characters didn't get to meet, did they? Jesus slips away. And now we're in this transition scene. Uh, this scene one at the start, the paralyzed man, this transition into scene two, or maybe that was scene two and we're going into scene three. It doesn't matter. Where Jesus introduces himself to the paralyzed man who'd gone to the temple. And so when Jesus arrives at the temple, the, the, the man, he finds the man and says to him in verse 14... See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus is saying, I took away your sickness as a step towards taking away your sin. Jesus is saying, I took away your sickness as a step to taking away your sin. You see, there's more to this than simply a healing. Jesus passes judgment on him. You've been healed, you've been raised up, but unless something is done about your sin, well, it's not going to end well for you, it's not going to go great, you're going to be in trouble. What does Jesus mean by this? At the final raising up, when everyone is raised from the dead, faces judgment, this man will be in trouble, verse 14. You see, it's about holiness. Jesus heals and then says, let me show you what I'm in the world for. I do intend to take sickness away from the world in time, but right now I've come into the world to conquer sin and to pay for it at the cross. So your holiness is actually what I'm interested in. 
And it's at this point that the man goes away and tells the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders, well, they're angry. And they begin persecuting Jesus. And Jesus throws them this one-liner that uh, challenges them and sets them up, or sets up the next scene, rather. Uh, Jesus says, verse 17, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. When the Jewish leaders hear this, it turns their plans for persecution of Jesus into plans to kill. Verse 18, Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's blasphemy, it's heresy. You can't say that. But it's an overreaction. Why do they assume he is making himself equal with God? Well, they, the Jewish leaders, were, were there. We don't know what else was said or how it was. But they believed he was. Jesus was talking that God is not just his father, but that as though he is one with God, equal with God. And the most important thing here is not to understand why they said it, but that Jesus let it stand. Jesus doesn't just make the claim, he lets it stand. He's digging the hole deeper, as we might say, not backing away from his claim that he is equal with God. And so then we move into this response. And so Jesus expands. And we enter this response monologue from verse 19 to 30 where he outlines or digs the hole deeper just what he means when he says, I am equal with God. Jesus doesn't back away one bit. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Don't impute to me a claim that I am God. That would be blasphemy. That would be heresy. No, he lets it stand. And it makes things a whole lot worse for him. And there's some ways that he unpacks the implications of his equality with God. Jesus is always acting in perfect harmony with the Father. We see in verse 19, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. And here's the most radical part, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus is not rejecting what they said about him, he's accepting it. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. The Father creates the world, the Son creates the world. It would have just about put the Jewish leaders over the edge. That is massive, massive, massive statement for him to make. And Jesus is in perfect synchronisation with the Father, they both... They don't just both go off and do their own thing. But what happens when we get to verse 22, where it says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. What then? Does it mean that the Father doesn't do what he sees the Son doing? No. It means the Father judges no one on his own. He gives that to the Son, to Jesus. We see that in the second half of verse 23. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. The Father sends the Son and how we respond to the Son then determines how we respond to the Father. Jesus is going to judge the world. He is the decisive historical judgment point. 
He's dividing people over whether they honour him or not. The Father and the Son are in perfect agreement, therefore, over who is and who isn't honouring the Father. There's no inequality here at all. Jesus submits himself to the Father and does what the Father shows him. Jesus has done the will of the Father in healing this man, but the sign or the miracle is just a foretaste of something so sweet. Remember, the healing is done on the Sabbath, that the last day. This is a foretaste of that ultimate last day, the beginning of the ultimate Sabbath when Jesus is going to raise up and give life to all of his people. He's not just going to pass judgment on one person like this man, but rather he's going to judge all of humanity. The Father was made, has made him a lifesaver and a judge. That is the will of God. It is the Father's will because he wants everyone to honour the Son. This is a model then of what is to come. This is what Jesus is getting at. Think of it like this. Recently we've shown you some building plans uh, for a building extension. Uh, the plans will be developed further until we in all likelihood, have the architect build us a model of what the building will look like. It'll illustrate the final building. But that model is not the real thing. We're not all going to shrink and jump into this tiny little building. But it shows us what it will finally look like. Symbolically, Jesus has raised the man on the last day, this Sabbath, the last day of, crea of the creation week, and taken away sickness. But he says he's going to do even greater things than this, than just taking away the sickness of one man. He's going to raise the dead and give judgment. Verses 28 to 29. He's going to reconcile all things to himself, whether through forgiveness or through judgment. Forgiveness for those who honour the Son and judgment for those who dishonour the Son. Colossians 1, 19-20. Just put it up there so you can see that, where that comes from. Jesus talks about this day of judgment when in perfect synchronisation with the Father, in perfect harmony, based on who honours the Son, the dead will rise and judgment will come. But how do you know with confidence where you'll be? Remember John said in John chapter 3, 16 that whoever believes in the Son shall not perish but have eternal life. He even restates this in 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 24. It says, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Wow. So if you believe Jesus now... The last day will come as no surprise for you. If you believe Jesus now, you will not be condemned. You will have eternal life. More than that, he's saying, you already have it. You, have, you are an eternally blessed person if you are a believer in Christ. But it gets even better again. Not only will you not come into judgment, you are already on the other side of judgment, passed from death to life. 
your judgment happened at Calvary, you were judged with Jesus, crucified with Christ, raised with him, and everything decisive about your judgment is over. Romans 8.1 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't just claim or say all this stuff, but he actually proved it. He didn't just claim to be able to remove sickness, raise the dead, forgive sins, judge the dead on the last day. He proved it. We know that it is impossible to heal a paralytic by saying, hey, get up, or bring someone back to life by saying, hey, rise. Impossible. But think about it this way for a moment. If we took away the first part of chapter 5, we say take away verses 1 to 15, the account of the healing, we'd be left with the ravings of a certified madman, a lunatic. But through verses 1 to 15, rather, we see Jesus completely different. You see, this healing was never in question. He did it in the public square. Even the Jewish leaders didn't question it. They were more worried that Jesus and the man had broken the law of the Sabbath by working. And Jesus used this sign. John recorded it so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31, our key verse for this series. And it's pretty clear what John is telling us. Jesus is not just a man who did an amazing miracle here. He is the Messiah. He is the King, the Son of God. And a day is coming, the last day, that ultimate Sabbath, when Jesus will speak and you and I will be raised. The dead will rise and we will face Jesus as judge. And on that day, if you have relied on Jesus, believed in him, honoured the Son, you've already passed through judgment. That day will be a day of immense joy, the beginning of an eternity in heaven, enjoying God. But on the flip side, if you haven't believed, if you haven't honoured the Son, you will face condemnation for your sin. It's as simple as that. Who you say Jesus is now determines where you will spend eternity. We need to rely on Jesus. God gave him, God sent him to die. Verse, chapter, th- chapter 3, verse 16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This life is good and this life can begin now and this life can go on forever. And at the end of each story, John calls us to make a decision about who we say Jesus is. And so today I ask you, earnestly, who do you say he is? We honour him by believing in him, 